0: It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronya the mailbag edition of Rico Bronia. We'll answer, I don't know, a handful of your questions from Twitter. Before we get to that, though, a couple of news and notes from the last couple of days. Number one, it is so crazy to me how the Jacob deGrom rumors have evolved. Uh, if you go back a month, if you go back two months, if you go back to the start of this off season, the perception was Jacob deGrom hates us, doesn't want to be here. Can't wait to leave New York. That was the, the buzz around Jacob deGrom and that, you know, as much as the Mets may offer Jake, he just doesn't want to be here. And so they're going to lose him. The other day, Mike Puma and the New York post had a report that, has completely changed the narrative around what we thought we thought about Jacob deGrom, and that is the idea that Jake, A, likes it here, B, wants to come back, and if the Mets offer, could it just be comparable to the biggest offer he gets, deGrom would prefer to stay. And what's crazy about this, assuming that's true, because obviously we talked ourselves into the fact that deGrom hated us, not that long ago and couldn't wait to leave. But that fits what Jake has said publicly. You know, every report or every belief that we had about Jake, not wanting to be here was never created by anything he had ever said publicly. I had played a clip on the fan. I tweeted out a clip from Jake from spring training of this past year in which Jacob DeGrom says, I'm going to opt out. I'm going to keep the Mets abreast of the situation the entire time I love being here, and I think it's really cool to spend your entire career with one team. And for whatever reason, we all sort of forgot about that or all sort of didn't believe it. So the last couple of days and really the last couple of weeks, it feels like there's this momentum shift, not towards the Mets necessarily keeping DeGrom, but that he doesn't necessarily just want to leave. And that really what the Mets have to do is just pay him which is any other free agent or any other guy that opts out. He wants to get paid. He wants to make the most money of any starting pitcher. Obviously, years are going to be a factor. Uh, So really, here's where I'm at now with Jake, and I think this is where we should all be at. This is now on the Mets, that this is no longer a fear of, oh, my God, he's going to take less money to go to Atlanta. Oh, my God, he's going to take less money to go to Texas. Right now, it seems as if, if the Mets are willing to pay him, If the Mets are willing to give him the right amount of years, he's willing to stay. And I'm going to tell you right now, because I don't want to get nuts before anything happens, the Mets can't lose him now. It would be unacceptable for the Mets to lose Jacob DeGrom over not wanting to pay him a third year or a fourth year. So I don't know if your feeling has changed off, but the fact that it seems like Jake likes us, he really likes us, and wants to stay, does that make you a little bit more confident that he's going to be resigned?
1: Well, I don't think I was ever one of those guys that was uh, fully on board that he was leaving. I thought that if it was going to come down to a money situation, because ultimately at the end, like I, I, I still think that like a guy like Degrom still ha- wants to get paid. That's that's it, and I think that Steve Cohen would pay the max. So I, I I I guess I'm doubling down now. I feel I feel great. I'm not saying I feel hundred percent, but like I'm as optimistic as possible. The the other
0: interesting rumor is that the Mets have had contact with Justin Verlander. They had like a little Zoom meeting with Justin Verlander, and you know as much as we love Steve Cohen's deep pockets, the Mets are not signing Justin Verlander in conjunction with Degrom and Scherzer. They would be signing Degrom or Verlander, I should say, to replace Jacob Degrom. And despite Verlander's brilliant 2022 season, uh, it's a backup plan. You know, I know Verlander was better this past year and obviously has had just an all-time career. But to me, it's not ideal to replace DeGrom, who is still five years younger with Justin Verlander. So I don't have a problem with the Mets talking to him because you have to have a backup plan. You know, you never know what's going to happen. But I am not one that prefers Verlander over Jacob DeGrom, you're you're signing a free agent in the case of the Mets, re-signing a free agent with an eye on what you think is going to happen the next few years. And despite DeGrom's inability to stay healthy over the last few years, I would still, and this is not even my, my biases or my, hey, I'd rather go down with my own guy theories anymore. This is just strictly who would I bet on over the next three years? I'm not even the Mets. Let's say I'm the Texas Rangers. Who am I betting on over the next three years, Degrom versus Verlander? I think I would still bet Degrom because at forty years old, now another year removed from Tommy John surgery, the end is going to come. I mean, it's just it's going to come with Verlander. So I think it's more realistic that Ver, that Degrom has a few more dominant seasons left than it is Verlander. The other pitching rumor that's very interesting, and I know will bother some Met fans is the idea that the other free agent starting pitcher they've talked with is Jamison Tyone. Now, Jamison Tyone is the kind of guy that you sign to replace Tywon Walker. And watching both guys over the last couple of years, I think it's safe to say, at least for me, I'd rather have Tywon Walker than Jamison Tyone. That's the way I look at it. Now, Tyone this past year with the Yankees went out and made 32 starts, and that's really what you want from the back of the rotation arm, and he had a 3.9 ERA. Taiwan Walker made 29 starts, so made pretty much a full season worth of starts and had a 3.49 ERA. So about a half a run better. Ty did not fall off in the second half the way he did the year before because the final numbers from 2021, and I think Walker and Tyone are an interesting comparison because they're both New York pitchers. They were both acquired for the 2021 season. They're separated by one year in age. Tyone's a year older. So it's like a nice, even two-year comparison. And those would be the years I'd look at because Tyone didn't pitch at all in 2020. And 2020, Taiwan Walker pitched, but it's also like a weird season to look at. In 2021, Taiwan made the 29 starts. He had a 4-4 ERA. Tyone made 29 starts. He had a 4-3 ERA. So Tyone had a better year. But I still look at, Walker's overall season, while the numbers aren't as good as Tyone, Tyone Walker was an all-star in the first half of 2021. And what happened was he was so bad in the second half, it kind of jaded all those numbers. Now, did he have a better year than Tyone in 2021? Look, consistency matters. And the fact that Walker completely fell off a cliff is a factor here. But I think over the course of the two years that Tyone Walker's been here, and the course of the two years that Tyone was with the Yankees, I think pound for pound, Taiwan Walker's been better. And I think if you replace Walker with Tyone, while it's not night and day, I think it's a downgrade. And again, like I said about Degrom and Verlander, you're betting on the next few years. It's not just simply what I discussed, which is hey, who's been better the last two years? It's what's going to happen in 23, what's going to happen in 24, and if I'm a betting man. I'd be more likely to bet on the success of Taiwan Walker than I would Jamison Tyone. It's not a huge downgrade. So I don't want to act like it's end of the world kind of stuff, but I do think you're better off re-signing Walker than you are adding Jamison Tyone. But these are backup plans, I think. I I think that's the way you're looking at it. If you're Billy Epler, you're going to talk to a lot of starting pitchers because you want to make sure that you have your bases covered in case you lose a guy or two. Now, before we get to your questions, Mets made a few moves this week with the 40 man roster. They made the trade with the Miami Marlins where they acquired Eliser Hernandez and Jeff Brigham. I'm actually more intrigued by Brigham because I think Brigham could very well be on the kind of bullpen chart of eight, nine guys, and you know, possibly be on the opening day roster at the start of the season. Both guys have options. Brigham had a decent year last year. Hernandez, like, he's got good stuff. He's still relatively young, but you basically acquired him to replace Trevor Williams, and he has not been nearly as good as what Trevor Williams was last year for the Mets. It sucks that they're going to lose Trevor Williams, but I think when you trade for Elias or Hernandez, you're viewing him as a swing guy. Now, the Mets have a couple of swing guys. Joey Lucchese, assuming he's healthy, could be a swing guy. Uh, Depending on how many starters they had, Tyler McGill or David Peterson, Maybe a swing guy. Jose Budo, who we saw, and it wasn't good. But let's not get rid of him because of one bad start in Philly. But he has a chance to be a swing guy. It's a no harm, no foul deal. You no know, assuming the prospect they traded Franklin Sanchez, who's many years away, doesn't become some future stud four years from now. It was just about adding more depth. Kind of like when they acquired this William Woods from the uh, on waivers from the Braves, 23-year-old arm. You're just trying to throw as many arms as possible because you never know. Maybe Jeremy Hefner's a is a genius and he's going to turn Elias Hernandez into the next young stud in baseball. But there's nothing that Hernandez did with Miami over the last four years that excites me about it. But you never know. Uh, sometimes you acquire a low-end starting pitcher and you've got your gurus that figure something out. They didn't acquire any of the guys I mentioned. <laughs> The lefties from last week who were DFA'd Harlan Garcia and Ryan Yarbrough. But it's a long offseason. I am confident the Mets will add a lefty at some point. And one other thought before we get to the mailbag. Brandon Nimmo's contract. And I remember when we did the Brandon Nimmo uh, edition of Rico Bronio. We both predicted he's going to get paid. He's going to get a big contract. There in our reports, Jeff Passon put it out there a few days ago, that he's going to get 130 million that he is going to get paid in such a huge way. And I'm not surprised because we basically said it, but when you hear the figures out loud, it makes you pause and say, damn, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. I, I'm not deathly deathly afraid of giving it to him because I think if Brandon Nimmo's healthy and that's the ultimate question with him, can he stay healthy? Which he did this past season. I think he's the engine of this offense. He's an incredibly productive player. I don't think this is it for him in terms of where he would go as a player. Like, I think he could get better. I really do. I think Brandon Nimmo's one of those baseball players who's continuing to ascend. So I know on the surface, $130 million may make you cringe, and it may feel like an overpay, and it probably is, but I'm not looking and hearing that number and saying, oh my God, I can't pay him. Like, I don't have that reaction to it, And like we talked about, you also have to replace him and replacing him is going to be very, very difficult. You know, Cody Bellinger who did get non-tendered by LA while he's a nice backup plan. I don't trust him. You know, I can't predict that Cody Bellinger is going to go back to the guy he was three years ago. I think it's more likely they fix this internally, like we talked about last time, which involves Marte playing center, McNeil playing right. Maybe you add another middle infielder and that's not ideal. You don't get better doing something like that. So if ultimately the Mets have to pay Brandon Nimmo 130 million dollars, I'm not going to freak out.
1: The funny thing is like, I'm not a Nimmo supporter at all. Like I actually am. So like I feel, I, I, Feel like we can upgrade with like, like you said, Trey Turner, somebody that they could bring in. You'll spend more money, but you know what you're getting, and you know he's high leverage, and he's just a phenomenal five tool player. However, the one thing that Brandon Nimmo and I will, I will forever compare him to Hunter Pence. He brings intangibles to the game to his to the team that no one else can. There are certain things that you can't put on stats that he brings to the table that you'll miss if he's not around.
0: Yeah, the, the the only concern I have about Brandon Nimmo is, can he go out and play 150 games over the life of the contract? Because up until this past season, his contract year, he missed time every year. Like, every year he was going to miss not just a little bit of time, but significant of time. So I, I look at it this way. Even if he's not ascending maybe necessarily the way I think, and this is who he is, he's still an 800 OPS ball player. He's still a real solid defensive player. He still draws a bleep ton of walks. He still can have an on-base percentage near 400. You just need to do it at a minimum in 130, 140 games. And so, look, there's no way to predict that, obviously. There's no metric that's going to tell you how healthy Brandon Nemo's going to be. But if he's going to play 140 games, not just the intangibles you mentioned, but the production he'll give you, I'd be happy with we'll keep an eye on that. He's a Boris guy. And when you're a Boris guy, <laughs> you're going to get paid. And you say what you want about him. He gets his clients paid. Now, let's open up that damn mailbag. I appreciate anybody tweeting, especially if you did it right after that just brutal, awful, disgusting New York Jet loss. And for our Giant fans out there, you're probably not as depressed as the Jet fans. But thank you. We are here to distract you. Not just talk Mets baseball, but distract you from the depression that is week number 11 in the National Football League. Now open up that mailbag, Hoff.
1: What do we got? All right. We open it up. So it's funny. We're going to talk about guys that are on the roster right now. At at official gods, YT, should the Mets lock up Alonzo and McNeil to a long-term extension before they hit free agency like the Braves did with their young talent?
0: Yes, A hundred percent. I always think it pays to lock these guys up early because if you believe that your guys are good and you believe that the production you've got out of them is legit, I don't think you could go wrong. And I've always felt that way. And I, I think it's a bet that's usually worth it. The only time the bet would not be worth it is if the guy just completely bleeps the bet. And when you look at Jeff McNeil and you look at Pete Alonzo, I don't see either one of them bleeping the bed. I, I think the concern, not, not the concern, it's not the right word. The question with McNeil is how many years do you want to give him because he's not young. It's so strange with Jeff because he came up at the age of 26, 27 years old. Jeff McNeil on opening day next year will be almost 31. So for the majority, basically for all of next year, he's a 31-year-old and he's got two more years of control. So he's under team control until he's 33 years old. So if you want to buy out arbitration years, great. If you want to now, <coughs> excuse me, get into free agency, how many years do you want to give him? But I think McNeil's the kind of player who's always going to be useful. He's always going to be valuable. He's a Swiss Army knife. I mean, he may be the Mets second baseman in 2023, but in 2026, if he's still around, he may be the left fielder. He may be the third baseman. You don't know. Alonzo, you know, the more years that go by, the longer you wait on something like this, the more money it's going to cost. You know, the Atlanta Braves have taken some early, early gambles. They paid Michael Harris before his rookie season was even over. They didn't mess around. I mean, think about it. It would be as if the Mets, you know, Francisco Alvarez is on the team next year. It's the middle of July and the Mets give him a new contract. They say, oh, right, we're going to buy out. All of your arbitration years, here's a nine-year deal. It takes a lot of guts doing it, but it's a really, really smart gamble. I think with Pete right now, who is now proven, now he has proven that he is a top slugger in this sport. And he's also proven something I was just questioning about Brandon Immo. Pete plays every day. Pete alonso has been in the major leagues now for four years, and I'll include 2020 because he didn't miss games in 2020, even though it's not a 162-game season. And in all four years, Pete Alonzo plays. So I would love to lock these guys up long-term. I think it saves you money down the road, but I wonder with Pete if they've waited too long. If Alonzo, who's now been in the majors for four years, is thinking to himself or his agent is thinking, well, I want to stay. I'm so close to free agency. And that's where you can really make your money by forcing a team like Aaron Judges with the Yankees, maybe even DeGrom with the Mets, Hey, you better pay me. I'll go sign with
1: another team. Yeah, but if you, like, part of, like, when what is uh, Alonzo's deal up? What is his last year of arbitration?
0: He's got two more years of team control. So he's in his second year of arbitration eligibility. He'll be a free agent in 2025.
1: Now, where I thought the judge deal was extremely under, um, they tried to undercut him. With the two for the seven years, the two thirteen or two seventeen, whatever it was, if you offered that to Pete Alonzo right now, I think he'd be more willing to sign that. Well, if you offer him that, he will. (laughs) Yeah, he's also not—he's
0: also not quite Aaron Judge as much as I love him. Uh, He's going to make about sixteen million dollars this season from arbitration, and then next year he'll probably be close to twenty. So. He's already going to make some money over the next two years. You could go to him right now and give him a five-year deal, which is buying out two years of arbitration and then three free agent years and offer him, you want to say $25 million a year, $28 million a year. Uh, I mean, I'd do it. I want this guy on the team long-term. I think we all do. And I'm not deeply concerned about him. And maybe that's unfortunate, something that the Mets take into account where they know he wants to be here so badly. So they're like, yeah, you know what? No pressure, no weight, no rush. We can go to free agency, and we know we're not going to lose him.
1: Yeah. Well, that's backfiring with the Yankees. So I, I think you can learn from cross-town rivals in that. With Now, that's not to say the judge is not going to stay, but the price tag just is going to go through the well,
0: roof. Well, the Mets, and I know this is predating Steve Cohen, They haven't done a lot of these brave contracts. They haven't done a lot of let's lock these guys up long term. Now, they did it with Wright and Reyes years and years ago, and both turned out to be really smart decisions because they had them on team-friendly contracts, signing them as early as they did. Remember, they gave DeGrom his extension coming off a historical Cy Young season, but they did it before he got to free agency. So you can do it sometimes when a guy's only one year away from free agency like they did with Jake. Um, look, I'm in favor of it. I mean, that's the overall point. Obviously you got to work out the money and you got to make guys happy. But you ask me right now, would I want to lock up Pete Alonso long-term? Of course I would. Who would be against that?
1: Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. all right, well, that leads to a not uh, offensive side, but more of a defensive side, pitching side of things. At scientific underscore one, with the Mets seemingly lacking major pitching prospects, are you worried about what the state of the pitching staff will look like in the near future? The reason I'm
0: not is because if you remember the Chicago Cubs um, from their previous run that they had, where they won the World Series, They were built around all these really, really good young position player prospects. And think about what their rotation looked like. They basically bought their rotation. They would go out and acquire veteran starting pitchers. Uh, I think right now, over the next, let's say, three to five years, that may be what the Mets are doing. Because if you think about all the prospects who are about to arrive, already have arrived, who could make an impact on this roster, they're mostly position players the the pros the top end prospects in this Met team. Brett Beatty, Francisco Alvarez, Mark Vientos, eventually Ronnie Mauricio, Alex Ramirez, guys like that. And if the Mets are going to have this young core of offensive players to go along with, we just mentioned Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, obviously Lindor signed long term, but you've got affordable locked in bats all over the place. I think the Mets perennially will be dipping their toe in a free agency when it comes to pitching. And that if things work out the way we hope with some of these young bats, we're not going to be pining for big-time bats in free agency. We're not going to be talking every year about, oh, they got to add this superstar. They got to add that superstar. We may be talking more about, hey, Max Fried's a free agent. Go sign him. you know. And obviously, I'm talking three, four years from now, so there's other guys who aren't coming to mind, but guys who probably aren't even that good yet. <laughs> you know, starting pitches that haven't even developed yet. So I'm not concerned about it. And look, guy like Matthew Allen gets healthy. You can have your own prospects develop. So, I'm not saying that's ruled out. What I am saying is that I'm not overly concerned about, hey, Max Scherzer's not going to be here forever. Hey, Jacob DeGrom, even if you re-sign him, may not be a top-notch pitcher forever. I just think they may be more built around adding pitchers from the outside um, and hopefully having developed the bats from their system, their main objective will be adding pitching from the outside. So, no, it it doesn't overly concern me. I just think that's how they're going to be built, which I know is far different than what they've done over the last decade and really in their entire history because they've been a team built around young pitching that they drafted, that they developed. But right now, at least for the foreseeable future, that's just not who they are.
1: So now the other side of it, At the quiz 40, the kids should have been brought up early. I believe two out of Beatty, Vientos, and Alvarez will regress. Do you start the season with them and then look for trades? If they suck, their trade value will go down.
0: (laughs) You can't think about their trade value. You can't. I would look at it this way, and I know you're going to be disappointed, Pete. I don't think as this offseason rolls on, and I know – Little has happened, but they kept Edwin Diaz. We're starting to hear, oh, this may happen, that may happen. I don't think they're going to add the bats that you want. I don't think they're going to add the bats that everybody wants. And I think they're going to rely on a lot of the young pieces that, as our last writer mentioned, they failed to call up early. Like, I think Brett Beatty being the opening day third baseman is not completely out of the question, or at least being a part of a hard platoon with Eduardo Escobar is not out of the question. Mark Canna in left field played a lot, but he wasn't a he-has-to-play-every-single-day kind of guy. So if Brett Beatty can hit, he could play a lot of third base, which could lead to Escobar playing second base, which could lead to McNeil playing maybe, let's say, a lot more left field than we thought, and Mark Canna sitting. There's a lot of creative ways where if Beatty hits, he's going to play. And I would give him that opportunity. I really would right out of the gate. Now, guys have to show something in spring training. You're not handing him a job. I'm not saying you are. But I think if Beatty can hit a little bit in spring training, he's got a chance to be the most of the time third baseman. Vientos, it's going to depend on what they do at DH. And he's look, he's just going to have to hit too. Obviously, all these guys are. Alvarez, I think, definitely is going to play a lot. I think he's going to catch a lot. I think he's going to DH a lot. How much he DHs, again, will also depend on if they add a right-handed DH or if they add another DH along with Vogelbach. But I think those three guys specifically have a legitimate chance to be on the major league roster, and in Beatty and Alvarez's case, have a chance to take a ton of at-bats. And I wouldn't be thinking about, does it hurt their value? I'm not thinking about their value. I'm thinking about, can they help this team? Can they be a part of this short-term answer. You know, so I think Beatty and Alvarez have a real chance to be on the opening day roster. Vientos is a little bit more up in the air because what would his role be? You know, where will he get those at-bats? But I really believe that a lot of the Met success is going to depend on how good Francisco Alvarez is. He has a chance to change the dynamic of this lineup. You know, last year, They had good defense behind the plate, but they didn't get a lot of offensive production from catcher. They've got a chance, even if Alvarez is half as good offensively as we think, 50% as good offensively as we think, to improve the production from the catcher position by a ton, even by him just being half as good as we think. So I think Alvarez and Beatty have a big chance to have an impact early.
1: I agree, and I will say that I'm not opposed, especially having Alvarez start the season up in the big league, same with Beatty, too. Like, I'm all about that. But I think you have enough space to sign up. Listen, I am i don't expect them to go get Judge. I just don't. Should they make an offer? Yeah. Do I expect them to get Turner? No, but I I'd like to really make a run for him. And you could still then platoon – Whoever you want, you could still find that bats for Alvarez, that bats for Beatty, that bats for... Con- There's plenty of bats to go around. Trust me, I promise you that. You still need to improve the offense a little bit more. Yeah,
0: but I, I think Trey Turner and any other significant offensive bat you mentioned, I think they're only in play if they lose Nemo. I don't think they're in play in conjunction with Brandon Nemo. I think the kind of bat they would add, assuming they keep Brandon Nemo, is a guy who could fill the DH role. A guy like Jose Abreu, I think, becomes a legitimate option. But I would be really surprised, and I don't mean to, you know, bring a a cloud over Met fans if you were expecting more. But I would be really surprised if they keep Brandon Nimmo, paying him 130 million dollars, and then go add a big time offensive bat. I don't expect that. If they lose Nimmo, is all that stuff in play? Absolutely. But it's replacing Brandon Nimmo creatively. Because even if I'm wrong about what I said about Turner months ago, that I'd sign him to play center field. Let's say it's not on the table. He's not interested in playing center field. You can still sign him and have him replace Brandon Nimmo by way of McNeil playing the outfield and Marte playing center field. But I think that's where they would add a big-time bat. Uh, I don't think it would be in conjunction with Nimmo. And a part of it is Steve Cohen made a comment a couple of months ago, a while ago, I forget when, about they can't pay everybody in every position. Eventually, you're going to need some of your own guys to come up and contribute because for the first five years of their career, they're not making a lot of money. you know. And that's not about being cheap. That's about being smart. So you can allocate your funds, like I mentioned earlier, towards all the big-time starting pitchers that you're going to sign over the next couple of years.
1: Um. All right. At Check Raise You... Would you rather DeGrom for 50 million a year or Rodon for 25 and Turner for 30? <laughs> so would
0: I rather trade <laughs> Turner and Carlos Rodon than Jacob DeGrom? Yeah. And I assume with DeGrom I'm keeping Brandon Nemo? Right. So it's DeGrom, and or am I adding it? See, that's the thing. Like, am I. Repl-
1: well, there's no Nimmo here. There's no Nimmo here. So
0: Nimmo's just gone, period. So Nemo's just gone. Uh, look, Turner and Radon make you better. From a baseball standpoint, I'm not going to argue otherwise. Um, to have that kind of offensive player on your team, that kind of engine to your offense on your team and trade Turner wherever you're playing him, I can't minimize how valuable that is. That's incredible. Radone Radon was great last year for the Giants. He was great the year before for Chicago. I'd be concerned about his health. No, I think his health is a major question too. Um, so I think you do take a hit in the rotation because I still viewed DeGrom, and maybe this is the difference of opinion I have with some other Mets fans, not all, is that I don't necessarily think DeGrom is this average starting pitcher now. I don't think he's the guy he was over the handful of starts he made this past year, I think there's a really good chance that Jacob deGrom could have another Cy Young season. May not be a 1-5 ERA, but I think he absolutely can win another Cy Young. And so I don't think Carlos Rodon, as good as he is, would be as dominant as what I think Jacob deGrom could still be. And that obviously leaves out the sentimentality of it, that he's our guy. You know, he's the siever of our generation, as I've said before. So... I want DeGrom back. Do I want him back even if it means I'm not making moves that make my team clearly better like that writer suggested? No, it's a a tough question because I want to win. Obviously, winning is the most important thing. But I really believe deep down, besides just the love that we may have for him, I believe that he gives him the best chance to win because I also think he's got those balls that you can't predict other guys have. You know, despite his struggles at the end of last year, Jacob deGrom is the guy who showed up and won the one playoff game the Mets won. As much as we killed him for the Atlanta start, Jacob deGrom was the best starting pitcher of the three. He just was. So it almost makes that start look better because of what Scherzer did, because of what Bassett did. And I'm never afraid that deGrom's going to struggle because of the moment. He may struggle because, you know, He's, he's not human. feeling
1: right <laughs> by, by what you say? By he, that, he, that he's human. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, right, that he's human. I just don't think the moment's ever going to get to him. So you could create whatever question you want out there. I'm probably still going to lean towards the answer being re-sign Jacob DeGrom.
1: Well, no, that, that that's what everyone gets to tell me, too. Like, oh, you guys just – the Mets would be stupid to bring back DeGrom. He's too expensive, and, you know, it's just – it, there's, he's too injured to this, to that. And he, my to my caveat is this. My my rebuttal is this. If Jacob deGrom is as good as he's been in the past, which I believe he will be, why do I want him anywhere else but on the Mets? Yeah,
0: and you don't want to risk it. You don't want to risk having see him be that same guy somewhere else. So, look, I, I've made my points very clear about this. I think it's essential that they keep him, uh, and hopefully they do. And hopefully we're all arguing with each other about how great he is and where he lives in MLB starting pitcher history as opposed to how much do you want to pay him. Pay the guy, bring him back, and let's give it another run of DeGrom and Scherzer as a one-two punch.
1: Uh, From at GRR Jr., so this kind of leads into the bigger end of the the offseason. What is your perfect offseason for Mets, free agent signings, and trades?
0: Uh, the perfect offseason would be you re-sign Jacob DeGrom, you re-sign Brandon Nemo, and you pull off a blockbuster for Shohei Otani. No, I'm kidding. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it would be very exciting. I doubt that's going to happen. I, I think keeping DeGrum, keeping Nemo, keeping Taiwan Walker, and then adding, you know, one... D.H. Bat. You know, man, I was thinking Jock Peterson at the beginning of this process. Jock actually took his tender and his back, so he's not even going to be available in free agency. Maybe it's a trade for Ian Happ that doesn't cost me all that much, but I'm not looking for – I don't need necessarily this big blockbuster offseason. Like, if you bring back those guys, which I always thought was a priority, bringing back DeGrom, bringing back Nimmo, The bullpen thing is such a crapshoot. They obviously have to add left-handed relievers. So my dream offseason includes adding that, whether it's Andrew Chafin as a guy or a few others. But I think as far as the bat is concerned, a DH. You know, a guy who can kind of fill in and be a more sturdy DH bat than what we saw this past year from at first the combo of Dom Smith, J.D. Davis, into the combo of Daniel Vogelbach and Darren Ruff. This doesn't need to be this star-studded, sexy offseason. It doesn't. Uh, I know that a lot of people feel it needs to be. I don't think it needs to be. I always thought that keeping your own guys was the number one priority. So my dream offseason is keeping our own guys. It would be very difficult to watch Brandon Nimmo in another uniform and us all figuring out, all right, how do you replace him? Same thing with Jake, as we pointed out. Um, So my dream offseason is keeping these guys. And I think I'd be content. Uh, I don't think Hoff would be content. He needs Trey Turner in his life, but
1: <laughs> just bring us, bring the guys back. Yeah, bring them back. But again, like you just play, and this is my issue that I maybe I just can't look past it. You played a you 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 won hundred and one games. You had a terrible wild card series versus the Padres, right? And you're going to bring the same team back now. Clearly. Um, you know, there's going to be some people missing, like Bassett's probably not coming back, you know, Bassett and or Walker are not going to come back. Uh, we're hopefully going to offload James McCann somewhere. There's going to be some pieces that are going to be gone. And then you think that these young guys are Young prospects are going to help too, but it's not enough. Like, I feel like there was something that was missing from this team, especially in the playoff time. But,
0: but you, and you're not alone in this almost talk about this team as if they weren't that good and they need something major to change that. They won 101 games. Yes. They sucked against Atlanta. Yes. They sucked against San Diego. No, I'm not arguing that, but I don't think this is the kind of team that needs a makeover. Like they need major, major, major changes. It's not a
1: makeover I- though. It's not a makeover. I'm not saying, Oh, get rid of everybody. I'm saying one thing that would be really nice is to have protection for Pete Alonso. And yeah. that's what that's the that's the DH you're talking about. I don't know if Jose Abreu or or JD Martinez are the guys to do it anymore, unfortunately. That they're just kind of out of their prime. So like I'm thinking who's the next best available. There's not many pieces. So either you have to trade for somebody or you have to bring in a or, the one big piece that's available.
0: Or you've got to do the boring thing. And I know it's boring, especially in the middle of November you need your young freaking players to grow a pair and become stars. You know, ask yourself this: why did the Houston Astros win the World Series this year? No, well, why? What was the thing that got the Houston Astros to a world championship? And I know it's not one thing, there's a lot of things. So I'll list you a few things. Your Dan Alvarez has become an MVP caliber stud. Jordan Alvarez was a nobody that they acquired for a relief pitcher from the Dodgers a half a decade ago. Jeremy Pena, who was asked to replace Carlos Correa, became a sturdy, everyday player, and then a freaking postseason GOAT. And I don't mean a bad GOAT. A GOAT, you know? That's a positive term these days. You need your young guys to contribute. So, how did the Mets improve from a year ago? Besides, maybe Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom pitch a whole season, assuming they're both back. Uh, how do they get better? They get better because they've got young bats who have to produce. That, that, that's how they get better. And by the way, their DH spot could not possibly be worse than what it was last year. By accident, it would be better than last year. Dom Smith we had to say goodbye to this week. I left that out. I didn't bring that up in the uh, beginning of this podcast because Dom Smith's forgettable. That's why. That's why I forgot to bring it up. Oh, they non-tended him. Guess what? The guy couldn't even be in the major leagues the last two months of the season. I like Dom. Dom had his moments. We were all wrong about Dom, especially after that 2020 season. We thought he would be the answer. Him and Alonzo could switch off at first base. One with DH when the DH came. Met fans celebrated the DH rule because they thought it benefited us. Yeah, it benefited us. Oh God, better off having the pitchers hit last year. But if you can get just a little bit more production out of the DH spot, the offense becomes a lot better. You know, and that's of course assuming Lindor is still an all-star caliber player. McNeil may not win a batting title, but it's still an offensive uh, force that he is. Alonzo still has good offensive numbers. You can't have those guys fall off. Obviously, if they do, it changes the entire complexion of this offense. But I don't think they need to do anything major. The key to the Mets next year, it's going to be those young guys making an impact. You know, if we're talking about Francisco Alvarez as the rookie of the year candidate, that changes the offense in a major, major way.
1: Uh, okay, a few more. Um, Mets rule in 2K. Do you look back at the 2020 season fondly, or can you, like me, not get past how it ended? Atlanta series through the wild card round still hovers over me, uh, ho- hovers over my thoughts on the whole season.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, in, in discussions like this, and we talk about what they were last year and what they can be this year, I can be very matter-of-fact and talk about how successful they were in the regular season. You know, we could talk about that, and I'm able to talk about that. But in terms of emotion, when thinking back on this season, uh, it was a colossal disappointment. You know, you spend all summer envisioning this team as a World Series contender, thinking about the possibilities of a, an NLCS against the Dodgers or the Braves, a World Series against the Yankees or the Astros. To have it end quickly, to have it end meekly, to have it end, you know, sort of pathetically is very tough to look past. And I don't think there'll ever be a moment uh, down the road where we look back fondly at the way this season concluded. And look, that's the way sports is more than it's ever been. You're defined by what you do in the playoffs. You know, you could have the most fun regular season in the world. If you're getting knocked out in the playoffs quick, it's tough to be that fond about the season. So, you know, for the sake of these discussions, when we talk about the team next year and building off of the accomplishments of 22, I, I feel like I can be, yeah, they won 101 games. Yeah, they had a good regular season. I, I can say that. I, I believe that. But in terms of, hey, Evan, was the 2022 season a good year? No, oh, they, got, they got embarrassed in a wild card series that never even felt like a real playoff series. So it's tough to look past that. It was not a fun season. And hopefully in 2023, a they're back in the playoffs, which would be nice. And then B, they could actually go on a legitimate postseason run as opposed to, you know, a fart in the wind. That's three games (laughs) in a
1: wild card series. Oh yeah. Please get me further. Just get, get me close. Get me to the NLCS. That's a good start. Right. Mm. Uh, At Mediocre underscore man, what was the worst Mets player jersey purchase that you regretted the most?
0: Oh, boy. I got a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) I I sort of feel bad saying it, but I'll say it anyway. The Mets have a team store at Citi Field in which they give you or they give you the opportunity to buy game used jerseys. And so I went in there at the end of a regular season years and years ago. And I had a chance to buy the jersey of a minor leaguer who I thought had a chance to become a star. I really liked this kid. I was like this guy has a chance to be a real good player on our team for the next decade. And so it was game worn, but I was going to wear it. Like it wasn't one of those game worn jerseys I was going to put up on a you know, put up on the wall. I was going to wear it. I was going to be like this is my jersey. And so I bought a Josh Toley jersey. And I really believe that Josh Toley had a chance to be a good offensive player. In fact, I remember arguing with a buddy of mine who's a big Tiger fan, my friend Patrick. Patrick is a big Tiger guy. I'm a big Met guy. And Josh Tolley you know, wasn't hitting much. And Patrick's like, man, you bought that Josh Tolley jersey. You're a fool. And I said, let me tell you something, Patrick. Josh Toley can totally be my Alex Avila. Because Alex Avila put together some decent years for the Tigers. And he's like, it hey, can't be Alex Avila. This guy can hit. And yeah, never put it together. He never hit. I mean, Josh Doley's most famous for his ability to catch R.A. Dickey. That was his thing. And then obviously he was in the R.A. Dickey trade. So I'd say that one is up there. Uh, if I go back to earlier, if I go back to my younger days, I had a Bill Pulsifer jersey. I like Pulse, never really worked out for him. But I think uh, mostly, besides the Toley and the Pulse of her decisions, I've always been very patient when going out and buying a jersey. I don't do it immediately, takes me a while. Like even Lindor, Lindor's now been here for two seasons. You know, guys they add, they, they got to really prove it. Uh, they got to really, really prove it before I run out and buy their jersey. So I don't have that many. Regrettable decisions. I do have one jet jersey that was regrettable. Vernon Golston. No, I'm just kidding. I got that as a joke. I saw a Vernon Golston jersey after he was a bust on sale for like $9.99. And I bought one and gave it to Joe. And he did not find the joke funny. <laughs> he didn't like that? <laughs> bro, what why did you what are you doing this for? You you spent money on this, bro? Bro, what are we doing here? Uh so I guess that one really doesn't count. Because it was a joke.
1: Uh, let's go to at Steven Prociato or something like that. What is one Mets memory that you have experienced that you will cherish forever? I've always thought
0: about like, what's my best, best, best memory. And I think when put on the spot, the grand slam single by Robin Ventura, I think that's the one because I was in the building I remember a lot of moments from it. It was rainy at the time. I actually shut my scorebook in that inning. I actually shut it. It was the 15th inning or the 14th inning. Can't even remember the inning. I think it was the 14th inning. Um, The Mets are down a run because Octavio Dotel gave up that run. Keith Lockhart hit an RBI double. And remember, the Braves, they win the series. They're up three games to one. They get those last three outs. We're done. You know, we watched the Atlanta Braves celebrate a National League pennant. The Mets had won the night before to make it three games to one. They were down 3-0 in the series. And that entire bottom of the inning is so memorable in my mind. Like everything about that inning jumps out at me. Sean Dunstan put together. One of the greatest clutch at-bats you'll ever see in the rain. Fouling pitch after pitch after pitch off against Kevin McGlinchey. Gets that single to right center field to start the rally. Uh, Todd Pratt drawing the bases loaded walk to tie the game. That was when I shut my book. Pratt draws the walk. It's pouring now. I have a towel that covers my scorebook. The towel is soaked. The towel can't take any more agua. It's over. But bases loaded, one out. We've tied the game. I shut the book, and I said to my dad, I'm going to remember what happens next. I guarantee it. Whatever it is. Now, I wasn't saying he was going to hit a home run. He could have freaking struck out. I was going to remember it. I knew what was going to happen. And it was 2-0. Two balls, no strikes. Bases loaded. Tie game. And Ventura hit that line drive. And I didn't think it was out. I just thought... Game's over, obviously, because as soon as the ball goes to the outfield, it's at least a sacrifice fly. Right field is jogging in, so he's not even going to look at it, and it somehow like magically sneaks through the, the raindrops and over the right field fence. And the jubilation I had and everybody had in that ballpark, even if we didn't realize or think the Mets were going to win game six and seven in Atlantic, because I don't think any of us thought that, but the raw excitement of winning a marathon game like that Avoiding the Braves from celebrating at Chase Stadium. I'd say that's close to number one. And the other one that's close, I I shouldn't be embarrassed to say it, but I get mocked for saying it, is the Johan no-hitter. Is Johan Santana pitching the no-hitter, not the one-hitter, the no-hitter against the Cardinals in 2012? That was an out-of-nowhere moment. And sometimes the moments that just come out of nowhere uh, are the sweetest. So I think those two ones jump out at me a little bit, even though both didn't have happy endings. You know, in the moment, they were amazing, but when you think about what happened next, it's not that happy. The Mets lost that brutal classic game six a couple of days later, so they didn't win the series against the Braves. And Johan Santana and the Mets sucked in 2012, and Johan was basically out of baseball a few winnings later. You know, made... Uh, his next start was against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Pitched a one, two, three inning. I thought, here's Johnny Vandermeer. And then he, he starts throwing batting practice in the second inning. And Johan was never the same. So two amazing moments that if you think about, well, what happened next, Dad? Well, what happened next is crap. That's what happened next. It's not like they went on to something
1: special. It was awful. Um, How many more, how many more do you want to do? You want to do one or two more? Give me two more. Feeling All good. Right. Two more. All right. Listen, if you we keep a flow, going with the flow, if you want. Uh, this is a non-baseball question, but relates to the Mets. What do you guys think uh, at, our, at WREC Cup? What do you guys think of the new scoreboard city is getting? I'm not into it. That's what this guy says. Oh, he's not into it. He's not into it. I think it's awesome. I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I
0: saw the artist rendition of it. Uh, a couple of months ago. And my first reaction was, wow, that's a freaking big scoreboard. I mean, my God, I, I think the fairest answer, I know it's a boring answer, but the fairest answer is, I got to see what it looks like. I got to sit down in my seat at City Field. I got to look up at the outfield. And I think immediately, oh no, hey, this is great. This is so cool. Or this is too much. Because sometimes it could be too much. Sometimes... There are scoreboards or things that are too shiny, too bright, too big, where you say, yeah, in theory it would be cool, but I don't know, it's too much. I'm excited to see it. A part of me doesn't want to see updates of it being built. Uh, A friend of mine sent me a picture the other day of, it's not built yet, but they're starting to kind of set it up. And I didn't want to see it. I want to walk in on opening day and then just see it. And I know that's impossible because with Twitter, assuming Twitter exists, Uh, you're just naturally going to see it. You're going to see updates. You're going to see pictures. I would love to walk in on opening day 2023 and just see it. But I'm excited. I I think what's really important with these scoreboards, in my opinion, is how you use it. What information are you putting up there? How much of that scoreboard is being used for advertisements? How much of it is being used to give us information? Uh, When I've gone to visiting ballparks, It's fascinating to see what stats they're going to give you. There are some stadiums in baseball now that give you new age stats that I don't even know what they are. Like, What the hell is that? And then there are some ballparks where you're like, I like that information. That's some pretty good information. So I think that's also really, really important, not just how big it is or how shiny it is, but what are you telling me? Like I'll give you an inside the weeds city field critique for those that went to a bunch of games this year, I think you'll appreciate this. They have a scoreboard above left field, above the the top of left field with the out-of-town scoreboard. And in years past, every single game would be on the board. It would be small, no doubt about it. You'd have to squint your eyes a little bit. But every game at the time would be up there. This year, I guess they figured, ah, it was too small. We want to make it bigger for people to see. Totally respect that. But in making it bigger, every game can't be on the board at the same time. So they would flash games. I hated it. Like, in theory, it's great because you can see it better. But every time I'd want to look up and see the Yankees score, the Braves score, which would be in the same spot, you either wouldn't see it or would be moving because they would go through each game. And so I hated that. I thought that they made a huge mistake doing that. It's one thing I really missed from the old Chase Stadium. They had that scoreboard in the outfield in which the out of town scoreboard was just there. And quite frankly, give me the score and give me the inning. That's more important than telling me how many guys are on base. Like, as much as I'd want to know how many guys are on base, I'd rather have no information but the score and inning, but it's sitting there in the same spot all game long. Because then you can't find it. And I know it's a different era. You could always just use your phone. I understand. We live in a world in which you don't even need the scoreboard. But it was always fun to just glance up. And in a split second, see, oh, okay. Yankees are tied with the Red Sox. Or, oh, the Braves, they're losing to the Nationals. And so I thought City Field took a little bit of a step back this past year. And maybe with that new scoreboard, they changed that. I have no idea. But. It's weird that in City Field, which is such a beautiful stadium, like I really don't have any issues with City. I think the scoreboard at City Field overall is not as informative as the one from Shea Stadium because they had the lineups there all the time. Now it flashes on and off. They always had the lineups. Now it was with the number and the position. But if you knew the number of each player, you had the lineup there the entire time. So I really miss that from the old Shea Stadium.
1: Well, that's actually a great question that uh, um, at pegged by Mr. Met or at pegged by Mrs. Met, do you miss Shea Stadium? Do you prefer City? What's your favorite non-New York Stadium? Oh, it's a
0: good one. Um, I miss Shea Stadium from an emotional standpoint. I miss that. I couldn't take my wife to Shea Stadium. I miss that I couldn't take my two boys to Shea Stadium. Um, The seat that I grew up in that my dad had as a season ticket, I thought was so unique. Not not the Shea Stadium. I think a lot of people probably sat there at one point, but unique to other stadiums in which you were so close to the action and like you were on top of things on that lodge level. If you remember going to Shea Stadium in the lodge level, a Shea Stadium behind home plate, like you were much closer than you are now if you're in the 300 level where which is where I sit. And is the most equivalent to the Lodge level, and it's a great seat. Trust me, I love my seat. But Shea Stadium was just—you were closer. It was certainly more dangerous, though, because foul balls would come at you 100 miles an hour, and uh, it would be a little frightening. So I miss that, and I wish I had the opportunity to take my kids there, just like my dad probably wishes he had an opportunity to take me to the Polo Grounds. But it's City Field from a food standpoint, from a, hey, there's a rain delay, where do we go standpoint, it's just a lot better. It is. Ask yourself this, because I, I have the answer, and it sucked. What did you do when there was a rain delay at Chase Stadium? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And I can tell you right now, I'll tell you exactly where I went. I went in the concourse where there was tons of people standing and there was nowhere to like do anything or we would go back under the cover on the lodge level and just sit there and wait. Nowadays, you got this Piazza club. You got this club. You got that club. You could walk this way. You could go over the Shea Bridge. Your kid could take freaking batting practice. You could eat food from any country you have ever thought of. It's It's better for rain delays. Just think about that. If you're like me where it's, hey, I'm just there for the game, great. I'm just there for the game, even though I have kids now, so I'm not just there for the game. But what about a rain delay? Where the hell did you go? You tried to go to Casey's? Remember Casey's behind uh, in the load section at Shea Stadium? You couldn't even go into Casey's. It'd be packed. Couldn't even move. So I always think back, and it's been a long time now, Terrain delays at Chase Stadium. And that's when I'm like, oh, man, City feels a lot better. So, yeah, it's just it's more modern. I miss Chase Stadium from an emotional standpoint, but City Field's a better ballpark. As far as my favorite non, I mean, I can rank City Field. I'll tell you exactly where it ranks. My favorite stadium is PNC Park in Pittsburgh. It's just gorgeous. I, I can't get past how just beautiful it is, how no matter where you're sitting, you got the skyline of their city. You got the beautiful gold bridges, the Roberto Clemente bridges, whatever the heck they're called. I think it's just such a gorgeous stadium that that's my number one. I have not been to San Francisco. That's one stadium I definitely want to go to. That could certainly knock Pittsburgh off the top of the list. And the worst stadium, I know we didn't ask, but I'm going to tell them anyway, the Oakland Alameda Stick in the Toilet Bowl Coliseum. That place is a dump. And what I can't get past with that stadium I went to a Mets-A's game in 2014 was I had to pee naturally. Gotta go to the bathroom. They got troughs there. There is nothing more disgusting than a trough. Could you imagine standing around with other men? There's no barricade. There's nothing. There's no barricade. You're like an animal. You just pull your pants down. Everybody's staring at each other's everything. It's disgusting. And you just pee. Ugh! The smell is awful. It's just It's really one of the worst inventions mankind's ever had. It's almost like when they invented it, they wanted to check out each other's jokes. I I don't know why they did it. I don't know why they did it. I went to do it because I had to pee. What are you going to do, Hoff? You got to pee. And I'm telling you, halfway through, I was like, I'm just pulling my pants up and going into
1: a stall. Like, what are we doing here? Just disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not interested in that. But but the, I guess it beats out. Uh, it's not as bad as pee, like we pee in a cone at City Field. No, like it's a white cone. We pee in a yeah, but there's a barricade. I don't have to look at yours while not, we're there's peeing. no there's no barricade. Yes, they don't they, have like barricade. They don't have separation. No, 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 no.
0: They have the wall, like a, a little mini wall so that in your peripheral vision you're not going to see mine, and I'm not going to see yours because I don't want to. No offense, I just, I just want to pee and go home. I just want to pee and go back to my seat. That's all I want to
1: do. Uh, listen, since we're, since we're on the off-the-cuff stuff, uh, from at the half, WFN has a question for you. Yes. Rate this from 1 to 10 as Drupal Cabrera's clothesline.
0: <laughs> I saw that the other day.
1: I, what I can't get past about the is Cabrera Cabrera
0: clothesline after a guy hit a home run and then pimped it a little bit, is I've seen worse pimps than that. Like, I've seen more bat flip action than what annoyed his Drupal. So there has to be more to that story on why has Drupal Cabrera clotheslined the other player. (laughs) Because, yeah, the guy stood there and watched. And, yeah, he flipped his bat. But I think his Drupal Cabrera's bat flip against the Phillies back in 2016 was worse than that one. So I appreciate the action of his Drupal taking uh, business into his own hands by clotheslining his opponent, but I didn't think that it warranted it. I mean, I've seen, I've seen worse. That's all I'll say. I've seen far worse. But thank you for everybody to contributing to the first ever Rico Bronya mailbag. We'll whip it out every once in a while, get a little interactive with the audience. It's always good to hear back from you. Uh, so we very much appreciate it. Hopefully, there'll be some big signings over the next couple of days and next couple of weeks as we head into the holiday season. We do have a couple of fun Rico Bronia planned, including the best and worst free agent signings in Met history, uh, some of the best and worst off-season trades in Met history, and going through some of the biggest villains in Met history. So there'll be a lot of Met history talk, but obviously, we'll also mix in the latest and greatest breaking news and rumors and strong opinions. We appreciate you listening. You check out Pete with Tiki and Tyranny at 10 a.m. on the fan. Obviously, me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. And remember, twice a week and whenever there's breaking news, we'll be here for you all off-season long with the latest Met Talk on Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all
1: times.